Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Say what you will, but there was a moment where Prince Charles in the United Kingdom showed the flag. It was 23 uh, years ago as the Britannia slipped out of the harbor of Hong Kong and into the Pacific Ocean. This, after Christopher Patton said very simply, that key phrase uh, that we knew at the time, again, 23 uh, years ago, uh, the idea of moving on. I'll get the phrase for you in a moment. We are honored that on this important day for Hong Kong, Lord Patton can join us. Lord Patton, who do you blame for this moment, it was to wait at least 50 years. We didn't get there. Who do you blame? Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is a new sort of Chinese dictator. Well, when I say new, different from his immediate predecessors. Um, certainly in the 1990s and since 1997, while they've been far from open in Hong Kong um, or in uh, China, um, on the whole, uh, Chinese leaders kept to their agreement on one country, two systems, that Hong Kong could continue with a high degree of autonomy, with its own freedoms. What we've seen with Xi Jinping is a determination to strengthen the party's hold over everything. He's been throwing China's weight around in a way which is in a danger to all democracies um, around the world. Uh, and I think he needs to be called out. And he's taken advantage of this uh, uh, coronavirus, which, of course, has been more difficult to deal with the way it was covered up in the initially by secretive communist officials. He's tried to take advantage of that, not only in Hong Kong, but there are incursions by Chinese troops uh, into India. They've been throwing their weight around in uh, around Taiwan. Uh, they've been throwing their weight around in the South China Sea, despite the promises they made to President Obama. So uh, this is down to Xi Jinping, who is terrified of having to deliver in Hong Kong the promises that people were made, that they could live under the rule of law in relative <clears throat> freedom. We see this, Lord Patton, on a week where Stanley Ho dies. There are the merchants of Hong Kong going back centuries. How would you suggest the business leaders of Hong Kong will react to this? What would be the best Patton path? Well, I, I want to say this very clearly. Uh, when I was governor of Hong Kong, um, uh, there was great support from the American Chamber of Commerce, uh, from the United States in general, for what we were trying to secure in Hong Kong. Um, and even though I had uh, worries about China, as we all did, worries about a communist system, not about Chinese people, but about, ch about communism, um, I used to lobby every year um, Congress um, to give uh, China most favored nation status, relatively open trade, um, although then outside the WTO rules. And I used to also argue that whatever happened, we shouldn't endanger the well-being in Hong Kong. And that's still my, my feeling. I think that um, what should happen, I hope, um, following President Pompe uh, uh, the Secretary of State's uh, Pompeo's uh, understandable reaction, um, is that we should form together um, uh, countries which will make uh, uh, Hong Kong, will make China um, pay for what it's doing in Hong Kong. Um, I hope that we will stand up for Hong Kong as over 500 
political leaders and church leaders and others around the world have already done. I hope we'll together and I hope that business will welcome that because there's no question at all that if you undermine the rule of law in Hong Kong, then you start to make Hong Kong a less uh, important financial hub in Asia. And it's already responsible for maybe two thirds or more of the direct investment which goes into and out of China. And I just think that a lot of people um, will think about um, running their businesses from Hong Kong or about um, recruiting people to work in Hong Kong. So uh, I hope business will put, um, without without too much nervousness, um, <clears throat> fairly to China what they actually think. Um, Chris Patton, good morning from London as well. It's Francine. So are, are you saying that actually the steps taken by the U.S. so far could, could actually backfire and just hurt businesses and people that have already been through a lot in, in the last well, let, year? Let me be absolutely clear about this. Um, what pres what um, the Secretary of State said, and what I imagine the President will say in due, due course, is, is pretty accurate. I mean, he's, he's defined, described what everybody um, is saying, that this is coach and horse rule of law in Hong Kong and through the promises made to Hong Kong of one country, two systems. And that throws that overboard. Um, and uh, I'm very pleased that uh, the Secretary of State made that. Um, so you can't argue that what's happened leaves Hong Kong with a high degree of autonomy. It doesn't. But what I hope is that the uh, American legislature, the Senate and Congress won't move on from that and impose some sort of sanctions on Hong Kong. If, if you want to impose sanctions on China, fine, but please don't hurt Hong Kong uh, at the moment, um, because it's been hurt badly enough uh, by what China's done. So, so would you not say that, that the UK and the US should actually treat Hong Kong right now as the rest of China? I hope that we will still try to work to restore some degree of autonomy, a greater degree of autonomy in Hong Kong, and that we will make China understand that there is a price to be paid for what it's been doing, not just in Hong Kong, but elsewhere too. Uh, there is uh, next month an upcoming meeting of the G7, and I've argued that um, should make sure that Hong Kong is on the agenda there, and that uh, President Trump, who I think will be in the chair at that meeting, and others, should together a common position uh, on Hong Kong and on China. We all have the same interests, whether commercial or otherwise, in relation to China. When you look at the annual reports of the International Chambers of Commerce in Beijing, Japanese, American, European, they all do the same thing. They all make the same complaints about the way that China does business. And what we need to do is not work separately in relation to, to China. We need to have a common position. That will terrify uh, China. Right. He's picking us off one at a time. Uh, Lord Patton, your comment from 23 years ago, your historic single sentence, I have relinquished the administration of this government. God save the Queen, Patton. What is your advice this morning to the Secretary of State of the United States as you call for an allied response? a developed, uh, developed economy response. What would be your counsel to Mr. Pompeo? My counsel to Mr. Pompeo would be, first of all, to thank him for the interest he's taken in, in Hong Kong, which I think is widely, widely and enthusiastically accepted 
in Hong Kong. He's not interfering in Hong Kong. He's expressing the sentiments of a democratic politician about the possible fate um, of a what was uh, a uh, community under the rule of law. So I'd thank him for that. Um, the Chinese don't understand that the problems in Hong Kong are because of them, not because from pe people from outside. But I would also ask him to remember that liberal democracies around the world, and I mean the word liberal not in a particularly American sense, but in the classical sense, open societies around the world are always strongest when they work together. The world did so well for 50 or 60 years because under American leadership, Europe, Japan, Canada, Australia, United States, all of us worked together under American leadership. And I hope that that's um, what this administration or a future administration um, will uh, do, because wow. I've got no that China is an enemy to us now. I'm sorry to say that, but that's how it behaves. Not Chinese people, but the Chinese Communist Party. Lord Patton, you started off by saying that, you know, President Xi is going beyond what any other leader has done so far, and you called him a dictator. Why do you think he feels emboldened enough to do that now when, when predecessors hadn't? Well, he feels emboldened to do it, but, but first of all, um, because he reckons that the rest of the world, and, and it's true, um, are very preoccupied with, with fighting the pandemic, which got as bad as it has been partly because of the secrecy and mendacity of the Communist Party in the early stages when those very brave Chinese doctors were trying to blow the whistle on what was happening in Wuhan. But I also think that he's probably under a great deal more pressure. Um, I think he's uh, reacting with some nervousness because, first of all, this is a party of the way the pandemic was handled. And I think it's also true that the impact on the economy in China um, is going to see unemployment rising and all sorts of economic and social tensions um, are related to that. And what I think he is trying to do is to whip up as much nationalist sentiment as possible, claiming that everything that's going wrong is because of black hands, because of the United States, because of the outside world. Um, I want to deflect attention from the fact that the real problem is how the Chinese Communist Party behaves. And, China, and communist parties are always ultimately the same. They're brutal and they're liars. Should, should, how should Europe deal with them? So we heard from Angela Merkel. I mean, it's pretty big accusations, uh, Lord Patton, that, that you're saying. Uh, if, if you look at Europe and how, what Angela Merkel was saying, she, she seems to intimate that actually the EU should, should get closer to, to China because of economic ties. Would that be a mistake? I think, I can't believe she actually said that. I think it would be a terrible mistake. What we should try to do is to make sure that China behaves by the rules, that China keeps the, the uh, agreements it makes, which it doesn't do at the moment. I don't believe in cutting off all ties with China, but I do believe in standing up to China when it breaks its word to, it, to us, and it does over, <clears throat> over. But we will need to have some sort of relationship with China if we're going to deal with future pandemics in, 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 in the years ahead, for example, there are going to be big problems about antimicrobial resistance, um, given that not least that 95% of the antibiotics in the world are made in China. So we will need to have some sort of agreement. We'll need to find agreements which they keep on the environment. We need to do that on trade. But when they break them, 
when they try to bully, as they've been doing recently in Australia, and they, as they've done in Sweden, as they've done in Norway and elsewhere, we need to stand up to them. These new wolf warrior diplomats who give a bad name need to be told to, to get out of the place. Uh, Chris Patton, how do we find a new Chow and Lei? I mean, after Mao, a gentleman came along who allowed for a handshake with Richard Nixon. If China's in search of a way to calm things down, can you identify that person or can you identify the process within their totalitarian regime where you get to the next Xiao and Lei? No, I, I, I can't, and nobody from the outside can. What you can depend on is that even though it looks completely united um, uh, against the world, you can depend on the fact that there's politics going on in there um, like nobody's business. Um, but, you know, how do, how do you manage to express a contrary view um, in China if when you do so you're or just disappear straight away? I noticed that in the vote in the, um, in the rubber stamp parliament today, there was one dissenting vote on the Hong Kong um, uh, resolution and six, um, I think, who, who abstain. I imagine they're already um, in re-education camps um, learning the right things to do. So it's very difficult to be a dissident in China. And uh, this president, Xi Jinping, this dictator, has, don't forget, um, closed down any dissident activity um, that he's seen. Um, he's locked up human rights lawyers. One or two people who were critical of him, um, of the way he handled the coronavirus, have simply disappeared. And those who tried to, um, uh, on the social media, tried to set out what was happening They've been closed down. This is this is not um, this is not a good guy. And he's intent on sending his Ministry of State Security into Hong Kong, which is the sort of equivalent of the Chinese KGB. And they're not being sent to Hong Kong in order to sell dim sum mm -hmm. and actually um, try to shut up anybody who objects to what China. Lord Patton, across from Alexandra House and down from the Mandarin Hotel in Central Square are the offices of the J.P. Morgan Company. I want you to advise American banking right now on what their approach should be after this historic day. How should James Diamond and others sustain and project in Hong Kong? Well, I think they should be very cautious, which I imagine they will be. I hope they won't pull out of Hong Kong. What's actually been happening as China has been trying to tighten its grip on Hong Kong, what's been happening is unfortunately uh, quite a lot of, uh, I think particularly younger executives have been wanting to move elsewhere. Um, but I'm, I'm pleased that the, the main banks and others are still there in Hong Kong. And I hope that they will um, continue to support the American Chamber of Commerce. And the American Chamber of Commerce will continue to stand up for the rule book, will continue to stand up for the law, will continue to stand up for all those things which have helped Hong Kong and American business in Hong Kong and American business around the world to prosper. Because American business is so successful because it's helped to create an environment markets can operate in a fair, on a fair basis. And I think that's the way that um, uh, the best banks have behaved, not occasionally without... Um, without getting things wrong, but we won't go back over all that. They're still better than any alternative I can think of. 
Uh, Chris Patton, thanks so much for joining us. We'll have to get you back on also to address uh, some of the issues out there on the South China Sea and whether that's where the first confrontation between the U.S. and China will actually happen. Christopher Patton there, former governor of Hong Kong. Let's start the program this morning, shall we? We can do that with Evan Brown of UBS Asset Management. Evan, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Let's just start with a question that I think is on a lot of people's minds at the moment. It is clear that the relationship between China and the United States is breaking down again. What is less clear is why this market is not picking up on it outside of the Hang Seng, outside of the Chinese currency. What's your read on things right now, Evan? Yeah, I think, I think the market is t- taking a lot of these broader issues on Hong Kong, on technology, on capital flows, and separating them from trade. They, they, they see the Hong Kong issues as more, as more regional and drawn out. And the view from the over, rightly or wrongly, the view from the overall market is that as long as this phase one trade deal stays in place, then it's not so much a global market issue. And I think uh, it was actually on that on that point very interesting that on Friday the U.S. Trade Representative and U.S. Department of Agriculture coming out with a joint statement and saying that uh, the the trade the trade agreement is still going well and this even in the context of obviously China purchasing a lot fewer agricultural goods than, than was agreed. And so the administrations are really trying to separate trade from technology in Hong Kong and the like. And uh, as long as that happens, I think the market will be able to, to uh, hold that. Evan, let me ask a 60,000-foot question. You're multi-asset. Where's the gain right now in the multi of multi-asset? Which part is where I can be comfortable being if I'm actually trying to make a gain over the next 12 months? Yeah, so I think, um, well, I, if you're really trying to make a gain, I think it's, uh, it's buying some of the laggards here, um, buying some of the things where we're seeing a, a a genuine policy change and where there are deep valuations. So I would start in, in Europe, right? We Everyone's hated European banks forever, but I do think we are seeing some meaningful, meaningful policy changes happening out of Europe with uh, with the, the, the recovery plan announced yesterday. Obviously, we know this is going to take time to get agreed upon, but the direction of travel is, is clear. And the signals from Merkel from Germany, the leader of uh, the facto leader of Europe, going forward to, towards a fiscal union is really important. So could see some re-rating there. And also, people should start paying attention to Japan. Massive fiscal stimulus coming out of Japan right now. Um, and, uh, you know, if we're looking at monetary and fiscal combination and the power that, that that can create for an economy, we're now finally getting it from Japan. We've had it on the monetary side, but not this strong on the fiscal side. So um, the deep value opportunities there to pick up. Evan, I want to pick up on what you were talking about with the EU's fiscal response that we saw proposed, not yet passed, still facing some resistance probably from the frugal four. You wrote that the distribution of risks right now for Europe are poised to the upside from being uh, to the downside earlier. Where do you see this not priced into risk assets in Europe, the idea that the EU proposal will get passed in its current form and will bleed into the region? Yeah, so I, and, and, and in terms of the distribution of risks, I mean, I'll tell you, I was concerned myself about, about Europe when that German court ruled against, against the ECB. And, and I think it scared Merkel too. And I think that's why we're seeing this change on the fiscal side. But, um, I, I think where it's, it's not so much price, uh, is European banks 
that's definitely one of them. Italian equities, extremely cheap, but I really think this is going to go a long way in people looking at the, at the fiscal trajectory of Italy. Obviously, it's ugly, but just the signal that Europe is moving in the direction saying, we have your back. And to be honest, these frugal floor, um, you know, they're putting up a fight, but honestly, they don't have that much leverage when you have the four main leading countries of Europe, uh, you know, uh, Germany, France, Italy, Spain behind this. And, uh, and, and so uh, I think that, that their, their power in, in driving or slowing down this debate is, is probably exaggerated. Evan, you'll have to forgive me. Maybe I'm a glass half empty kind of guy, in which case I'm sorry. But Tom, how long have we been talking about this? And maybe I've just been conditioned by much of the last 10 years. There are still holdouts. Let's even say that they capitulate. <clears throat> the Netherlands, Austria, come along with this whole plan. You've still got to wait until early next year for that capital to be deployed. Yeah. Just think about that. Every month matters There's right the- now. We're sitting here in the United States arguing about whether DC waits a month or two. Europe, even if it gets its act together, won't be able <clears throat> to deploy this until the start of next year. There's no question about yeah, that, John. The timeline here, folks, is really, really, really quite something. Evan, what are your thoughts on that? How fast can Europe move? Uh, not fast, unfortunately. Nothing, nothing is easy in Europe, and that's why... You know, we crucially are going to rely on the ECB to form a bridge over the course of, uh, of this time before we can really get things going. I think, I think that's why we're not necessarily saying jump all in on, on European equities and, and European assets right now because it's, you're not going to see the speed that you're seeing in Japan right now. I mean, we are nervous about the, the U.S. not acting quickly enough. At least in Europe, you have some better automatic stabilizers. Uh, in the background than you do say in the in the U.S. or perhaps some other regions, but the burden will definitely uh, depend on the ECB ramping up its QE program and finding ways around these ongoing court challenges from uh, uh, coming out of Germany. Evan, I love it. Nothing is easy in Europe. I will say nothing is particularly easy in the U.S. right now when it comes to reopening the economy. And that's been one of the driving issues that's been pushing stocks higher. How complicated is it when we talk about reopening at a time when people still don't know that much about the virus, the path, the spread? Where are you looking to find value amid this sort of risk on tilt with reopening still very much unproven? It's it's really tricky, Lisa. I mean, we we have the same kind of uh, uncertainty that that everyone does. I think um, you know we're we're obviously looking at all the the high frequency data that that Google and Apple and, and others are providing, showing activity kind of gradually picking up. Um, I think the market is liking that. They like to see things getting less bad, but clearly on a year over year basis, overall levels of of activity are still quite. Uh, quite depressed. So um, we're tracking it. We're not trying to make big predictions about it. So clearly we're seeing some improvement right here. It could stall out because reopening or not, it comes down to whether people feel comfortable. Do they feel safe going out? Um, and I think that's that psychological barrier is going to take a while to get through. And that's why it's so crucial that we get you know, a, a new fiscal plan uh, coming through so that you know, as the private sector has this caution, the private sector always has caution after a recession, but especially dealing with an uncertain virus that you're going to need to see on the fiscal side, you know, consumers made whole, businesses, uh, yeah. you know, continued lending and support there. And, uh, and most importantly, I think uh, state and local governments, which have been on the front line of this crisis. Evan, great to catch up with you, sir. We've got to continue that European conversation at a later date. Mm-hmm. Evan Brand there of UBS Asset Management. 
really going to be interesting to see how Mr. Pompeo and the president adapt and adjust to the reality that 2047 is here. There have been many good thinkers on this over the years. One of the greats has been Jonathan Fenby of T.S. Lombard. He's put out not one, but a series of books on China. And one of them, of course, was a wonderful monograph, fabulous book. Will China dominate the 21st century? Jonathan Fenby, will Beijing dominate Hong Kong? Well, politically, that is uh, certainly the way we're going. Uh, the the uh, decision <clears throat> to put national security legislation through the National People's Congress, which was approved uh, today in Beijing, that shows that uh, Beijing is going to take political control, I think, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, delegating some activity to the local government, but definitely the national interest uh, now predominates. Jonathan, there has to be an objective. And for much of the last several decades, the objective was to try and shape and influence the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party. What's the objective now in Washington? The objective in Washington now, I think, is to accept, you know, growing friction uh, with uh, China and uh, to try to uh, move business away from China to undermine uh, that economic political link which was built up after Deng Xiaoping's opening up at the end of the 1970s. Uh, and this is actually, to my mind, reflected in China, where you've got this growing emphasis on self-reliance, on absorbing pressure from the United States. And as you were saying uh, just a few moments ago, the whole question now, I think, is how Trump moves on the basis of what Mike Pompeo uh, gave us uh, last night uh, on saying uh, Hong Kong no longer have the high degree of autonomy on which the relationship was based. All right. So, Jonathan, let's talk about next steps. There is talk about the U.S. revoking Hong Kong's special trading status. Yep. And we're even hearing some leaders of the protest movement over in Hong Kong support this measure. But experts say that this will actually hurt Hong Kong and the U.S. far more than China. What's the thinking there? Yes, it, it's likely to hit Hong Kong more because, of course, Hong Kong's special position uh, between the mainland of China and the, the rest of the world, and particularly uh, the United States, depends on that special status. If that is removed, if Hong Kong is subject to the same conditions as the rest of China, then Hong Kong uh, will suffer, and a uh, question mark will be raised over uh, the whole American relationship uh, with Hong Kong. So th this is, this is uh, playing for some quite big stakes. And Jonathan, quite clearly, one of those big stakes are the commercial relationships that China and the Communist Party has with a continent in Europe. Europe has tried to sit on the fence through all of this for much of the last several years. Jonathan, in your mind, have we approached that moment, that inflection point where Europe can no longer sit on the fence and try and play both sides? Yes, we're moving towards that. And uh, the coronavirus crisis has, has pushed uh, in that direction. You're getting European governments having second thoughts about Huawei, uh, for instance, including here uh, in, the, in the UK. And I think, uh, you know, there is 
it'll take a long time in Europe, uh, as things always do. Uh, but uh, there is a feeling that we need, Europe needs to reevaluate the relationship uh, with China. This hasn't been made easier by the reluctance in Europe to get on board with Donald Trump. Europe doesn't know where the Trump administration is going and doesn't want to be enthralled uh, to uh, the Trump policies. But uh, I think there's a growing feeling in Europe that they need to reevaluate the relationship with Beijing. There's a growing fear as well that what we're seeing is a more assertive dictator, a more assertive Chinese leader in the last several weeks. Jonathan, what is happening on the border with India that you have some transparency, some clarity, some details on? Because sitting here in New York, it's hard to get the right perspective on what is happening with China, not just in Hong Kong, but elsewhere too. Well, that's part of China. There's a whole series of things happening at the moment. Um, uh, The South China Sea, uh, for instance, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and uh, the Indian border fits into that. And and China, I think, is going to press uh, its uh, border frontier uh, claims there uh, as well as elsewhere. So we're getting China operating on quite a number of fronts uh, at the moment. And uh, nobody quite knows how to deal with that, it seems. And all this is linked in with, I think, the overall desire to, to, to use the Trumpian phrase, make China great again. Jonathan Fenby, one final question. I began my discussion with Lord Patton this morning, talking about the governor and Prince Charles looking back at Hong Kong as they went out into the Pacific Ocean in 1997. That assumes a British response to this moment. How would you suggest or how would you recommend that Prime Minister Johnson respond to what we see between Washington and Beijing? Well, um, the the UK relationship with China over Hong Kong has always been a a pretty uh, difficult one uh, to to define in British terms, because Britain still wants to go on trading uh, with China. But uh, Britain now has to decide whether it stands by the joint declaration uh, and the position which it thought it was in as a result of the 1997 handover agreement. Um, and uh, it has to define it's a, much more clearly its own position uh, there. But I don't think that Britain should have any illusions about how much weight it bears uh, in the present relationship. I don't think anyone thinks we make it to 2047. Jonathan Fenby of TS Lombard, great to catch up with you. It is our simulcast on television and radio, Lisa Abramowitz. Jonathan Farrell and myself, and it is time where you just stop and speak to Americans confronting this policy head on. One of them is Jeffrey uh, Akimoto, out of Pomona in computer science and at Georgetown as well. And he has taken the position for President Trump of first deputy managing director at the International Monetary Fund. Mr. Akimoto, wonderful to have you on. I must speak, as Eric Martin addressed in his article on you last week, the very different skill set you bring versus the heritage of the position for America. And that is people with Wall Street experience like John Lipsky, or maybe it's people with the right pedigree of economics like your predecessor, David Lipton. You are going to be different. In what way will you be different as a first deputy managing director representing the interests of America? 
Well, thanks, Tom. It's great to be here this morning, and I'm enjoying the new format. Uh, look, I think it's no surprise that I, I, or no shock that I do come with a different set of skills and a different background. Um, it's just, it starts from the position that I have a lot of respect for my predecessors, knowing John and, and having uh, immense respect and kinship with, uh, with David Lipton, uh, who, who I still talk with. Um, but look, I think you know, what we need now is, is somebody who's going to be trying to bring the world together on these critical issues. We didn't anticipate a pandemic uh, before I started in this role. We're here now, and I think since I've arrived, you know, we've been moving quickly to try and uh, build relationships across institutions in the multilateral framework and also bilaterally with our key uh, countries and partners. That's what's going to be effective in uh, not only uh, responding to the health side of this, but also on the economics, which for some countries is just as important or even more important. Right. So much of this, and you mentioned bilaterally, is the new non-multilateral relationship of President Trump to the world. You're representing essentially an administration that is decidedly not multilateral. Ms. Gorgieva has pushed against that aggressively. How does the United States address a multilateral institution if it doesn't believe in the underlying theory? You know, I think, you know, what the U.S. wants is an effective multilateral framework, and, and certainly that's something that I worked on uh, quite a bit when I was in the, in the U.S. administration. I'm very proud to be in the current slot that I'm in now, which is trying to knit this up uh, better and to uh, make our programming more effective. This is, a, this is a huge challenge. One thing that we've had to deal with, as, as I think we all have in this crisis, is move with incredible speed. Uh, so we were talking a bit about markets and, and, uh, and market reactions, but, but really some of the optimism in the market is, is, is reflected in the fact that you know, institutions like ours have moved with incredible speed uh, and, and at incredible scale. Right. That's unprecedented in our history. Yeah, well, in our history, Jeffrey, the history of the International Monetary Fund is simple. They are there really as a crisis policymaker of last resort and usually offer what are considered not draconian, but very strict terms to any country that is in, in real need. Right now, a lot of countries don't want to deal with the former IMF regime. Can you recommend to the managing director that this needs to be a kinder, kinder and gentler? IMF? I think the conversation uh, Crystalline and I have been having with countries is this is not your father's or even your grandfather's IMF. Uh, we are approaching the world in the, in the context of this pandemic in a new way. A lot of that you can see in how we are provisioning our facilities for uh, for emergency finance at this point in time, which is, you know, we're, we're telling countries very, you know, be, we're very frank, spend what you have to at this point, but please keep the receipts. And we're going to be holding countries accountable on the back end for this, but we're not second guessing some of the decisions they have to make in terms of spending on critical uh, health priorities and social safety nets. I spoke to David Malpass of the World Bank about this question, but that was before we dragged 2047 into 2020. How will you advise the managing director, and maybe over the phone or a walk down to the Hay Adams, how will you advise the Trump administration to deal with this issue of Hong Kong? You know, I think uh, my role in this, and I think our institution's role in this, is not to involve too much in the geopolitics. What we're looking at this from is from an economic perspective, and one thing that is for certain is Hong Kong is an incredibly important uh, financial and commercial trading hub, uh, not just to the world, but also to China uh, and to the United States. That's underpinned by a, you know, a series of policies that have been built up over time, whether it's credible monetary authority, uh, a well-regulated banking sector, uh, you know, a strong reserve position. These are the kinds of things that we'll be looking at when we see about where, where Hong Kong is headed 
uh, from here. And clearly, the outlook for Hong Kong, while it's a little, a little unclear at this point or too early to judge given recent developments, is relevant in terms of the global economic right. outlook. One of the things we know, and this is for our radio listeners nationwide and also television as well, Mr. Akimoto, we come to a point where we say, when's the next cash call on the United States? How do you observe the fiscal structure of the IMF right now? And will you need to go to President Trump and to, the, to Capitol Hill looking for more resources? You know, it's an it's a, it's a interesting perspective. I think one way we look at it is, is a little bit different, which is we're entering into this crisis better resourced than we have uh, in any prior crisis. And so we're, we have a trillion dollars in, in financial firepower that you know, we are ready and able to deploy that's being deployed in real time today. Right now, given the, the, even uh, the, some of the more pessimistic projections that we have, we think we have the sufficient resources that we need to uh, carry out our, our role in this. Obviously, uh, we, we are, we are, we are um, encouraged by the good amount of international cooperation that's come behind some of our recent requests for resources, for example, fundraising campaigns uh, to help some of our poorest countries, which uh, have gone met. So that's, that's a good thing, and that bodes well for any future needs we may have. Uh, Jeffrey, one final question, if I may, and this goes mm -hmm. back to the heritage of the United States and with our economic counselors at the IMF, now Gita Gopinath uh, there, but I'll go back to the time of Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard and, of course, to the great Rudy Dornbush of MIT long ago and far away. The fundamental difference right now in these crises, plural, is we have much more of a floating rate regime versus the fixed nature that we had in the 50s and the 60s. Give us Europe opinion of dollar strength or dollar weakness, which is most efficacious for America? You know, I'll, I'll let the president and, uh, and, uh, and the Treasury Secretary speak on where they think the dollar should be at any given point in time. I think what's important here is that uh, the Fed is doing all that it can to support uh, financial markets, both through monetary policy and through some of its financing operations that are, that are forthcoming jointly with the Treasury Department. This is uh, obviously, a, we, we enter into this world, as you said, with flexible exchange rates that allows flexible exchange rates to be part of the buffers uh, that uh, help uh, you know, countries weather this. For some countries, though, this is the first time they're having to use uh, some of these tools. And so that's where our advice, uh, paired with our, his, as, you, as you put it, mm -hmm. these icons of the IMF, historic expertise and, uh, and uh, a wealth of knowledge gets deployed on the ground yeah. to help countries in real time. Mr. Akimoto, thank you so much for joining us today. Both Jonathan, Lisa, and I look forward to seeing you at the next actual IMF meetings, whether it's the spring meetings or the annual meeting. We look forward to that as well. Jeffrey Akimoto, folks, the first deputy managing director of the IMF. On radio and television, a must-listen for Global Wall Street right now. Tier Weissman is just really a most remarkable strategist, because he's not. He's Vassar in Harvard Economics, acutely sharp on emerging markets and international economics, and pulling that into a strategy for Australia's Macquarie Bank, and we're thrilled he could join us this morning. I've got to go right to the dollar and the dollar dynamics, Terry. The president, I think he wanted weak dollar, and now I think he wants strong dollar. What dollar are you predicting yeah so so this is interesting and i should say before you that good morning to all of you um uh this fine morning i i uh we know we have a, a view of the dollar that sees it actually weakening uh versus the euro and sterling uh somewhat at least going into the back half of this year 
Uh, whether it's what Trump wants or not, I think, is, is not what's uh, relevant here, although, uh, you know, what, what Trump is doing is going to have some say over what the dollar does, uh, and, and particularly the election, in, in our view, because uh, we think that one of the issues the market has not factored in recently are the risks around the U.S. election. Uh, and I'm not speaking so much about the presidential election, but, of course, if the Senate goes Democratic, uh, I think that the, uh, the situation with regard to taxes could change in the U.S., uh, we could see uh, a shift away from U.S. equities if the prevailing winds shift towards uh, higher uh, statutory corporate tax rates or wealth taxes or capital gains taxes. And if that were to happen, we could see the dollar uh, start to weaken against some of the majors as uh, asset allocators around the world simply start to move away from U.S. equities. So that's clearly one thing that could take the dollar uh, a bit lower uh, relative to the, uh, to the euro, potentially, and that's certainly something that's tied to U.S. Uh, political risk that's out there that I think the market's not uh, taking too much account of right now. Uh, I think the, the risks are mild, however, right? I mean, even if we were to get something like this, there's still some issues prevailing to the downside on the euro. We can see the dollar weakening, but not that much uh, against euro and sterling going into the back after this. Sarah, you touched on the trillion dollar question in the FX market. What's the driver? What's the dominant driver? Is it rate differentials or is it policy? Is it fiscal policy? Which one is it at the moment for you, Terry? Uh, well, you know, I think it's more rate differentials at this point. Uh, it, it's been very difficult for the market to to uh, make um, distinctions between fiscal policy across countries, let's say. Uh, when we're talking about trillions of dollars of spending and loan guarantees and other ways in which uh, fiscal authorities are going to try to influence the economy, it's very, very difficult to, for, for I think in my mind, for traders, even FX around to say, okay, well, that country's stimulating more and that country's stimulating less. It all turns into a mismatch at some point, especially insofar as we're not getting very much guidance uh, uh, with regard to when all of these uh, policies will, will be ending. I will say this, however, uh, to the extent that fiscal policy is not just stimulatory, but has other effects as well, it could be important. And I'll, I'll bring up here the case of the, um, the uh, uh, pandemic uh, uh, emergency relief fund uh, that the EU is thinking about um, uh, going forward with. Now, as you guys know, about 750 billion euros, all told, in grants and loans. That's uh, obviously going to be, to some extent, stimulatory. But I think to the extent that it's going to help the euro uh, in the back half of this year, it's not because it's stimulatory, but because it speaks to one of the most important medium-term risk and longer-term risk of the euro, which is the existential risk of an ultimate euro breakup. As we see more uh, EU unity because of this fiscal stimulus, it could help the euro. But that's a special case. I think in most instances... Uh, fiscal policy, at least the magnitude of it, is not that important. And it will be things like rate differentials that drive these currencies. All right, Terry, let's talk about rate differentials in an era of yield curve control. John and Tom have been talking about this extensively. We've heard from Fed officials this is clearly something they are considering. If the Federal Reserve does peg the yield curve at a certain place, if it commits to buying enough treasuries to keep it there, what does that mean in terms of currencies? Does it dampen all the volatility? Does it give a lift to the dollar? I think, I think it's going to dampen volatility. I don't think it's necessarily going to give a lift. Um, and, and, of course, this is all, uh, we all have to consider this in, in, in relative terms, right? Is, is yield curve control uh, better or, or worse for the dollar than, say, the alternative strategy that the Fed might have pursued, let's say, in an alternative universe, which was to go to, say, negative rates? Uh, let's put it this way. I think if the Fed did go to negative rates, it would be much worse for the dollar than if it were to do yield curve control. The problem with yield curve control is that it's a very, very tricky thing, of course, because if you were to peg, let's say, the three-year yield or the five-year yield to a specific level, 
you would have to issue policy guidance in respect of the short term or the overnight rate, which is consistent to where you are pegging the three-year yield or the five-year yield. If you make a mistake in that regard, uh, you may have the market uh, choose to either buy um, a three-year paper or five-year paper aggressively or sell it, in which case the Fed would lose control of its balance sheet. If it were to do that, i.e. to lose control of its balance sheet because it pegged the yield in the wrong place, uh, then I think you'd have a problem for the dollar. But let's assume for now that the Fed is pretty wise and savvy about this, and that when it pegs the three-year yield or the five-year yield, it will do it in a manner that's consistent, or at a level that's consistent with the forward guidance it's issuing, in which case the Fed may not have Terry to Weisman control Terry Wiseman of Macquarie with us on Tom Keane's favorite subject. Terry, this drives Tom Keane totally insane. <clears throat> but I wonder whether it sounds more dramatic than it actually is, because if they do go forward with what Williams and Clara have talked about in the last couple of weeks, all they're basically saying is that yield curve control is the following. It is a complement to forward guidance and date contingent forward guidance. And basically, they're just going to turn around and say for the next two, three years, say, we'll sit on yields out to five years, three years, whatever it might be, in line with the forward guidance. And guess what? The market's already there, Terry. The market is in line at the front end into the belly with the Fed funds rate already. So hasn't the market already done this work, Terry? Isn't the Fed just basically saying, here's the cap? So I agree with Richard Clara 100% uh, that yield curve control is complementary and it has to be uh, done as a complement of forward guidance. But there's the rub, right? If they were to make a mistake, uh, or maybe the market misinterprets them uh, as, as, as issuing a, a forward guidance which is not consistent with the yield at which they're pegging the, uh, the three- or five-year bond or the ten-year bond, then you have a problem. Uh, you have to thread the needle a little bit here, right? You have to make sure that um, the forward guidance that you issue is specific enough that the market always interprets it to be uh, consistent with the yield curve control peg that you're, that you're engendering to, uh, to promote here. Uh, that's important. I, I think, but like I said earlier, I think the Fed is, uh, is savvy about this. Uh, the fact that, um, that people like Richard Clare are speaking about yield control in terms of a complement to forward guidance and consistent with forward guidance suggests to me that it won't be a problem when the Fed does it. Certainly not for the dollar. Terry Wiseman of Macquarie on the latest with the Federal Reserve. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.